you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAS Studios. I'm Antonia Cerejido, and this is Norco 80, a series about God, guns, survivalism, and the bank robbery that changed policing forever. Today, we're going to focus on the survivalism aspect of this story. My conversation with Dr. Casey Kelly about survivalism's enduring allure from pioneer days to today's prepper conventions. Long before Casey Kelly was a media studies professor, he was a kid growing up in northern Idaho. And in Idaho in the 80s and 90s, a lot of people he knew were doomsday preppers. I had a number of acquaintances in uh, elementary, middle, and high school who bragged of having underground bunkers and um, stockpiling weapons. At the time, Casey didn't think much about it. I don't think we had a name for it until much later. Once he had moved away from Idaho and had become a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, a TV program put survivalists back on his radar. The Nat Geo program Doomsday Preppers actually is what began to pique my interest. Across the country, ordinary Americans from all walks of life are taking whatever measures necessary to prepare. I'm preparing my family for the total destruction of the power grid. The Yellowstone supervolcano. A financial collapse. And protect themselves from what they perceive is the fast approaching end of the world as we know it. This is Doomsday Preppers. So I think once I saw that that had made its way into the culture, uh, it was more than just a fringe movement, but something I thought that was worthy of our attention. Casey began studying survivalism as a social movement. He wrote a book that came out in 2020 called Apocalypse Man. Survivalism is not just an isolated community of people, but is also something that's really woven into American culture at a much broader level. What do you mean by that? Really, I think that survivalism is part of America's um, preoccupation with pioneer and frontier heroism. According to Casey, self-reliance is the central ethos to survivalism. And self-reliance has been a key aspect of American mythology since its founding. The frontier myth is a kind of uniquely American narrative that worships cowboys, adventurers, explorers, and conquerors. The lone, often white man who tries to make it on his own away from developed society. Casey says that's where the ideals behind survivalism really started. But it would change as the Industrial Revolution took over in the late 18th century. As people became more dependent on technology, more dependent on infrastructure, survivalism became about being ready to get by without those things. Our food and water systems may collapse at any given minute. This fear became acute after World War II particularly after a sort of idyllic idea of the U.S. began to be challenged. You see it begin in the 1970s when the myth of the American dream starts to implode quite a bit, when you have 
economic crisis, military crisis, and then environmental crisis. Seeing long gas lines in 1973 uh, when there was an oil embargo against the United States gave us the sense that we uh, are vulnerable to our dependence on outside resources. I think that those correlate quite well with then the turn to survivalism. This era of survivalism is the one that George and the other robbers were a part of. I think that the 1970s in particular saw a a resurgence of what some people have called paramilitary culture, which I think can be heavily tied into uh, America's defeat in Vietnam, but also just this broader sense of vulnerability. In the 70s, dejected Vietnam vets returned to a society that was ambivalent about the war. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. And so survivalists of this era, in particular men, weren't just responding to fear that the infrastructure they relied on could collapse. Casey says they also feared that the established social order in the U.S. was also beginning to crumble. This was a subculture. I think it was a kind of warrior attitude that people had, particularly white men who felt emasculated by the forces of the 70s, but also the movements of the 1960s, too. So uh, the success of civil rights, of black power, of the feminist movement, all of these things that demanded at the most basic level just equality. A lot of uh, white men in particular felt that a lot of things had been taken from them. And so I think you see people retreat into gun culture, into, um, you know, martial arts and combat and guns. Those things become, I think, really important. This is also reflected in the mainstream culture. I think of a film like Death Wish in 1974. I see the money, man. In which Charles Bronson takes to a rotting New York City and its ineffectual police force and goes after criminals himself, totally outside of the law. Uh, Same with Dirty Harry. We're not just going to let you walk out of here. Which is a kind of law and order film in which a lone male gunslinger has to go outside of the law to get justice. Who's we, sucker? Smith and Wesson and me. This feeling that came through in pop culture was reinforced by the national concerns of the time. And that perspective, that society was failing and that it was up to the individual to prepare for the worst, to protect themselves, is part of what drove George Smith to plan the bank robbery. In the next coming decades, several high-profile violent incidents involving survivalists would force the survivalist movement to change its branding. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. We're back with my conversation on survivalism with Dr. Casey Kelly. Throughout the 1990s in particular, a number of high-profile events put uh, negative impressions of survivalism out into the public. Two major incidents involving survivalists happened in 1992 and 1993. You have uh, police shootout in Ruby Ridge uh, and, and Waco. A federal agent has been shot and killed in a confrontation with a fugitive in North Idaho. Ruby Ridge was the home of a family of anti-government survivalists who retreated to a mountaintop in northern Idaho. Randy Weaver, a fugitive on a federal firearms charge, has been holed up in a cabin near Naples for more than a year. A year and a half before the shootout, Randy Weaver, the father, stayed quarantined in their cabin, evading law enforcement because he had failed to attend his trial on firearm charges. Randy Weaver has told friends all he wants is to be left alone. But with the sudden appearance of military hardware like this, his one-man stand against the law is suddenly taking on the appearance of a full-blown war. When marshals showed up, it began an 11-day shootout. Less than a year later, federal agents would siege a compound in Waco, Texas, that belonged to a group of religious survivalists known as the Branch Davidians, who believed Armageddon was coming. The federal agents believed the group was illegally stockpiling weapons. It happened outside Waco, Texas, a heavily armed compound, a religious cult. Four law enforcement agents are dead. 76 members of the Branch Davidians would die, including 25 children. The FBI said cult members didn't panic as tanks began to ram the compound, yet calmly, apparently under orders from Koresh, began to gather in an underground bunker and donned gas masks. Another high-profile shootout happened in Oklahoma City in 1995. In retaliation for what happened in Waco, Timothy McVeigh, a known anti-government survivalist, set off a bomb in Oklahoma City, exploding a federal building. A major explosion in Oklahoma City in a federal building. Those violent events made survivalism out to be a caricature of, of what we think survivalism is. These events all happened in the 90s, when the internet was still in its infancy. And as other survivalists increasingly began to find each other online, they chose to rebrand themselves so as not to be associated with these high-profile violent incidents. Survivalism didn't have a very good uh, reputation associated with it. And so I think prepper was a term that developed to kind of soften the edges a bit um, and to make what we might consider survivalism, to make it seem as something that is not a fringe, but is really um, about just simple preparedness for potential disasters. The term prepper is much more recent, um, and I think it coincides with uh, the development of online communities. 
online, the Prepper community shared tips and advice. Forums and YouTube videos detailed how to store food, hunt, be generally prepared. This is a YouTuber who goes by the name Never Enough Ammo. And it's just good to be prepared. I have a family to think about, and that's why I do this. Um, but I can't see how some people look at prepping, and they, they, in their mind, they instantly think the uh, hardcore militia guys who run around stockpiling weapons waiting for World War III or waiting for our government to come and try and arrest everybody who owns a gun. I can see that, too. Um, but to look at it from my point of view, I think prepping is something that's perfectly natural. It's something that's been done for generations. We just personally got lazy and stopped doing it. These videos are still popular today. In particular, one trend has held fast, which are the bug in and bug out videos. These are videos where people show the camera all the items they have packed in case of an emergency and would be ready to take with them in a moment's notice. And also, uh, I just got a new uh, bug out bag here. And a lot of you on my other videos have seen the old one. It's a uh, Swiss Tech, uh, which is actually a really good bag. This is my bug out bag. This is what I use. This is for me and my family. I've got a family of five. Um, so these, are, these items are going to be specific to what we've decided we need. The videos have a similar vibe to haul or unboxing videos in which people share what they bought at the mall that day. Let's get into uh, what we've got in the bags here. Um, all right, first off, flashlight. This is my little Coleman. Two-way radios. Um, this is my med kit. This is obviously a very large med kit. That's because it's for a family of five. Uh, super glue. Electrical tape, duct tape. So I, I separate all my stuff in bags. This is my bag of fire. Well, let's see, I've got three lighters. I've got uh, three boxes of matches. I've got some of the little emergency tea candles, magnesium fire starter in here. Survivalism or prepping is a large business. It's an industry that uh, generates approximately $500 million a year. So it's very, very expensive. That includes everything from underground bunkers, really, really high capacity rifles, essential oils, gold um, and metal stocks, weapons training. There is an entire cottage industry around doomsday prepping and it, it can be very expensive. Emergency relief revenue saw a 21.7% increase following the 2017 climate disasters. For a growing number of consumers, emergency preparedness isn't just logical. It's a necessity. Wait until you see how much people are willing to pay and how far they're willing to travel to survive the unthinkable. Terrorism, natural disasters. Most families are unprepared. The government recommends emergency bug out bags for your car, home and work. Introducing the flag bug out bag. Prepare your family now for the worst. Call now 1-844-BUG-OUT-8. But even this new, more sanitized online survivalist community has its extremist members. Casey says that after years of following prepper forums online, he wasn't all that surprised to see survivalists at the insurrection at the Capitol in January. Yeah, uh, I'll admit that when on the lead up to that day, I was very worried about what was going to happen. And when I saw it unfolding under my eyes, I was absolutely terrified because this is a uh, this is a fantasy that has played itself out in online communities for years. It's one thing to spout off about that on 8chan. It's very another thing to actually bring weapons and bombs into the Capitol. And so my concern, and still is, is that we've crossed some kind of event horizon where this is going to be something that happens more frequently. I hope that it doesn't. But Casey is quick to tell me that while there are extremists within the survivalist community, 
In his research, he was surprised that the community was more diverse than he anticipated, something that he discovered when he went to the survivalist trade show, PrepperCon. I expected to see a lot of um, kind of camo-clad mountain men. And when I went there, sure, there were plenty of those people there, but what I saw was all kinds of folks. The future of prepping when we return. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. We're back. In 2016, Casey Kelly went to PrepperCon, a gigantic convention for survivalists and preppers held every year in Sandy, Utah. It was a kind of a festive atmosphere. I saw suburban families with their kids in tow. I saw single women. And so, so you're here at PrepperCon in Sandy, Utah. And I've been a prepper all my life, just not realizing. So come down and check out our six by six cargo truck. Not to mention zombie-proof. Camouflage, hunting gear. And I had an interesting moment of surprise when I when I went into the, the convention center. I got to meet um, Miss America 2016. She's a doomsday prepper, and she gave a rousing talk on survivalism. We yes. actually have Ms. America, Julie Harmon. Um, she also was former Ms. Utah, um, and she her whole platform is preparedness. So she was in the fashion show. She's totally here to help us. She's one of our ambassadors. You know, it really literally threads throughout every single facet of society. And it's not just emergency preparedness, it's for every day too. There were several stars of some survival programs. They happened to be fans of Mountain Men and they liked what they saw on the show. There's a lot of us that are fans. A hurricane simulator for the kids. Oh my gosh. We've tested it over 120 miles an hour. Um, it's pretty insane. It's really loud and it's a lot of wind. There was a lot of different uh, ways in which they were engaging the apocalypse. We've got a knife fighting tournament. But they didn't look like what I thought. I realized that I had to kind of change my conceptions uh, a little bit, uh, that there was something about survivalism that appealed to all kinds of groups. What's in your bug out bag? And beyond these conferences, survivalism has also entered the luxury industry. You can purchase a multi-million dollar underground bunker complete with spa and barbecue grill. He makes the most expensive, most popular underground bunkers in America. And what do you get for $10.4 million? Uh, you get an underground swimming pool. And you can even buy a designer bug out bag if you happen to have $10,000 lying around. We have like five different levels of kit now, going from 95, now 10,000. The preps are black, which is what we're looking at. So with everything going on in the world today and with the political climate that we have, have you seen an increase in sales? Yes, we have. So why do you think survivalism or doomsday prepping is so big right now? One appeal that uh, may explain why there's you know, been such a, a resurgence in popularity of doomsday prepperism or survivalism, 
I think has been just living in an environment where people don't know whether they'll have a retirement or they're working in a gig economy where they can barely cobble together a living, you know, buy a house or have a family. But I think that that makes it seem as if perhaps a better alternative than investing in the stock market or having a retirement plan might be to, to doomsday prep instead. I definitely, I have survivalist tendencies. Like mm-hmm. I have a rooftop garden and definitely during quarantine when I think there was a general feeling of where are we going to get food and we're so interconnected and we should be, it's better for the environment if you have your own garden. Like I went all in. And so I under I understand. And I mean, as a millennial, that feeling of precariousness that comes through both the economic crises we've endured and also climate change. I feel that wholeheartedly. I think anyone does. Yeah. I, I The thing that's been the question, of course, in this story is like one thing is having a an urban garden and another thing is robbing a bank to build a, a bunker in Utah, you know? So I'd say the difference today or what, what sort of makes preppers different today is that you have a much wider range of uh, people who participate and varying levels of commitment. Now, to be sure, there are the people who build bunkers, who buy luxury doomsday condos in the middle of Kansas where there used to be nuclear missile silos But I think you have people that are much more casual. Um, They might be prepping for uh, a water shortage. Uh, They may be prepping for a natural disaster because of the fear of climate change that I think for whatever reasons, some people are dabbling in this community more than they are fully investing in it. If we're going to really invest in being preppers, why not as a culture prep for the the thing that we know will be our undoing, climate Mm. change? Hopefully, survivalism can be appropriated as a way of thinking about climate change. My, my fear is that we've individualized survivalism. It's become something that one does and they do it in opposition to their neighbors, believing that they'll, those people will turn into their enemies the moment that um, the shit hits the fan, which is the phrase that preppers like to use. And I think that that's what's really the most tragic thing about survivalism is that we don't do it collectively. So I'd I'd hope that we quit just preparing to protect our family um, and thinking selfishly in that regard, but instead that we might appropriate those values from survivalism as a way of thinking about how we're going to collectively overcome what can we do collectively to prepare for what we know will be the challenge of of the next 20 years. Dr. Casey Kelly is a professor of media studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His book is titled Apocalypse Man, The Death Drive and the Rhetoric of White Masculine Victimhood. This episode of Norco 80 was produced and written by me, Antonia Cerejido, and Joaquin Kotler. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with Futuro Studios. Leo G is the executive producer for Elias Studios. Marlon Bishop is the executive producer for Futuro Studios. Audrey Quinn is our editor. Sofia Palisecar is our senior producer. Juan Diego Ramirez is our production assistant. Maria Alexa Cavanaugh is our intern. Fact-checking by Amy Tardiff. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Original music by Zach Robinson. This podcast is based on the book Norco 80 by Peter Houlihan. Our website is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. 
Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. If you want to hear more Norco 80, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, the iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show. Stay tuned next week as we have Rosa Brooks on to talk more about the militarization of the police. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming and six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.